You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. All right, well, good morning. Good to be with you guys. Uh, My name is Ryan. For those of you that are new, uh, today after service, we're going to have at the gather event. My wife's going to be a part of that. And so we just share about the story, kind of what it looks like to be a part of North Valley. Talked to a number of you guys already uh, out on the uh, patio and uh, said you're going to be a part of that. So I'm glad that you are. If you're not, it's not too late to join and we'd love to have you there. Uh, Last week I was out of town and uh, was out in the White Mountains doing a little bit of study prep and just fun uh, time with my kids. And uh, man, it snowed out there. I was woke up one morning and it was like 20 degrees and, and it was a winter wonderland. And I'm lucky that I got out of there literally from Big Lake all the way over to Pine Top. It was just snow and ice. So coming around the corner on one of the corners in the wolf pup in my truck and all of a sudden we just start sliding and so thankfully, uh, I didn't slide off the road or there'd be no more Pastor Ryan, and, uh, but I, so I'm glad to be here today. Uh, so today we're jumping into the Gospel of John again, uh, 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 chapter 2. It's the story where Jesus turns water into wine. Uh, it's his first miracle. It's the first miracle recorded in our scriptures. There's uh, 35 different miracles, and uh, we're going to see... Uh, this first one done today. How many of you would just say, out of curiosity, would say, I've, you, you would say, I've seen a miracle in my day and time? Raise your hand for me. There you go. Um, so what is a miracle? I'm going to give a definition I think is helpful. Here it is. A miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. Uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem's a friend of mine. Uh, he's a theologian uh, here in the valley, and uh, he put this together uh, in his systematic theology book on the doctrine of miracles. For those of you that want to explore that, I'd encourage you to do that. Um, he does a great job. If there was only two books that I could hold on to, say I'm stranded on an island, uh, I would take the Bible and systematic theology Uh, would be my two books. Um, So this is the definition of miracle that I'm going to be working on. And then today, what I want to do to just get us kick-started is ask the question, what what does it take to get a miracle today? Um, And I think there's two things that are needed. That's it. Number one, you need a really big problem in life. Um, I don't know what your big problem is that you're facing, but miracles typically don't happen unless there's a problem. And so uh, what we're going to see today in the text of John chapter 2, there's a big problem. Uh, Second, though, you need a little bit of faith. The Bible says all the time that if you just have faith of a mustard seed, you could see a whole mountain move. I want to tell you a story of a a miraculous story. Uh, When I was uh, just a couple of years uh, into my faith journey, I became a Christian about 18 years old and... uh, about 20 years old, I witnessed a, an incredible miracle. Let me tell you the story. Um, I worked for a company out in Colorado called Noah's Ark Whitewater Rafting Company, the largest guiding adventure company uh, in the Arkansas River Valley there in Buena Vista. Uh, I was on my checkout trip, meaning I had gained in leadership and responsibility, and we were in the backcountry. Uh, there was a, a group that had come in from Lake Crystal, Minnesota, Uh, a a husband and a wife that were serving kind of as the youth pastors. The husband was the sheriff of Lake Crystal, Minnesota. 
the wife um, ran a home business or whatever, and they had a wonderful family and a bunch of kids and youth, and it was a trip. I was on my checkout trip, which means that if I basically did a good job of guiding this group of individuals through the San Isabel National Forest, the Collegiate Peak area, bagged a 14er and made sure nobody died, I would get promoted. I would get a bonus. I would get uh, an opportunity with more responsibility, and I would now be the leader in charge of all the backpacking trips. So this was a big trip for me. I'm young, I'm 20 years old, I've got a senior guide with me, his name was Niels Erickson, he was a couple years older than me, a little more experienced, he was there to observe and see if I could handle and had what it took uh, to guide in the backcountry there. We're out on the trip, we're about two to three days in on a five to six day trip, um, we're way out in the backcountry, and uh, we're sitting underneath a tarp trying to catch a little bit of shelter from the rain before we make a big pass over the mountain. Uh, we wanted to wait till the weather cleared because if pressing up into higher altitude, you are susceptible to lightning strikes and hypothermia and all that. So we are hunkered down at a temporary shelter. Uh, all the students are around, Brad and Susan are there. And uh, as I'm sitting there, I started to think through medical histories because everybody that joins the trip has to submit their medical history. And as a guide, you should know exactly what you're dealing with when people step out into the back country and you are in charge for five or six days. Um, as I'm sitting there, we're telling a story. Susan, she's probably in her um, mid-40s, is across from me. I'm 20, 20 years old at the time. Uh, we're telling stories about kind of life testimonies, how God's been working in our lives. All of a sudden, Susan rolls back in her uh, chair, a little temporary camp chair that she has, rolls back and falls over and starts to shake. Um, the daughter screamed out with this blood-curling scream, Mom! And then uh, uh, Brad was there, uh, her husband, and says, she's got a, a heart problems. She's having a heart attack. Uh, literally in that moment, uh, there's fight or flight uh, with people. And you know, some people, when a crisis hits, they don't know what to do. They fall apart. Nils Erickson, my supervisor, fell apart. Oh God, she's having a heart attack. What are we going to do? I look at Nils and I say, Nils, shut up. You're supposed to be the one who's mature here. You take the kids, go to the top of the hill, and pray for a miracle. You got it, Ryan. You got it. He goes to the top of the hill. He, he's praying, and you can hear Catherine sobbing and crying. Her mom's having a heart attack. Brad is uh, on the outskirts just kind of looking down at me. Uh, she's on the ground, and I'm uh, kneeling right next to her. I uh, see that she's choking on her tongue. Her airway is closed. I just open her mouth, and <gasps> she breathes. Um, and I say a quick prayer, Lord Jesus, I think she's got heart problems. I recall that now. I'm asking for a miracle. Preserve and protect her life all for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Nothing, nothing any more emotional than that. That was it. Simple prayer. Because well, I had a big, big problem. So just then, uh, Brad comes in and says, how's she doing? I said, she's breathing. She's, so, she's, she's coming back to us. She comes and she wakes up a few minutes later and she says, Ryan, I, I, I know I had a heart attack. Go to my bag, get me my medicine. Uh, I had a heart attack. I say, okay, Susan. I go grab her stuff, give her her medication, and we spend the next day and a half hiking out of there. We did an evac. 
as quick as we could. We had no communication, uh, too, too, too much of a remote area, but we just did an evac, and the whole team went in. Little did I know that that event would trigger what I would say, what I would call the Lake Crystal, Minnesota revival. Uh, Brad was the sheriff of Lake Crystal. Uh, Susan uh, went back to her doctor, and her doctor said, um, Susan, there's no explanation as to why you're still alive today. We don't use these terms in the medical community, but I would say, I think you experienced a miracle. God saved your life. Um, that testimony rippled through this little tiny church in Lake Crystal, and all these young people came to faith in Jesus Christ. Nils and I, despite Nils's little scaredy cat move, uh, we fly back to Lake Crystal, Minnesota, we're asked to preach. Tons of these youth kids come to faith in Jesus Christ. Parents come to Christ. And then we leave and there's a little revival going on. Catherine ends up going into ministry. Uh, the son, Ju Brad Jr., goes into ministry. Uh, Brad and Susan today are doing fine. What did I see? I saw a miracle. 20 years old. Two years after I became a Christian. What I would argue with you today is that uh, two things are needed for a miracle. One big, big problem and then just a little bit of faith. And so what we're going to see today is the first of Jesus' miracles as he uh, demonstrates this miraculous uh, uh, sign to encourage people to believe. Watch this. Everyone, please step outside. Just for a moment, Thomas. make that first cut into the stone, it can't be undone. It sets in motion a series of choices. What used to be a shapeless block of limestone or granite begins its long journey of transformation. And it will never be the same. I'm ready, Father. some out and serve it to the master of the banquet.
promise you, no one is coming. About time. The latter vintage, sir. Good, good. Let's have a taste. Stop the music! Stop the music! Everyone, listen! I have something I would like to say. I would like to address the bridegroom and the bride families. At every wedding I've ever overseen, they serve the best wine first. And then, when the people have drunk freely, much later in the feast, they serve the poorer wine, the cheap stuff. <laughs> because by then, who is going to notice? <laughs> Am I right? But you, you have chosen now to serve the best wine I have ever tasted. Let us thank them for this unnecessary but honorable gesture. May the wedding of Asher, son of Rafi and Dinah, to Sarah, daughter of Abner and Hila, be as pure and as fruitful as this wine. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. To Asher and Sarah! To Asher and Sarah! Is something wrong? Yes. I was. North Valley, it's a place where you're going to discover truth for life. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look together in John's gospel. Uh, it says this in verse 1, it says, there was a party. It was on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. I find it very um, encouraging to know that our Lord, uh, on his first miracle, shows up at a wedding. It's a party. It's a festival. Unlike our weddings today, we had one yesterday. It um, uh, started in the morning, was done by noon. These weddings were, were festivals, parties that would last days and days. Imagine that. Imagine the first service and the second service all gathered together for a wedding for the entire week here at North Valley. That would be quite some event. And Jesus shows up at that. Why is that? I, I think that uh, God honors uh, weddings and, and uh, marriage. When you look in Genesis, in the very beginning, of, you see the foundation of the family is a husband and a wife. And here Jesus comes into this sacred institution and affirms it and blesses it in an incredible way. 
Uh, there is a problem, though. You saw verse 3, it says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, help me out, they have no, they have no wine. Um, so it's uh, in this uh, setting and situation, if you don't have no wine, they're not having a good time. Other uh, commentators and, and conservative theologians and professors would say, oh, well, the wine was deeply watered down, you know, all this and all that. I don't know if it was or not, but they had no wine, and that was a problem. Uh, culturally speaking, the bridegroom, uh, oftentimes the, the marriages were arranged. The parents had a lot of priorities on uh, who married who. Uh, we would probably learn well from that, being more involved in our kids and who they marry. But uh, they, uh, this would be a major social taboo and an embarrassment uh, to the bridegroom and the family who financed uh, the entire wedding. Uh, but notice the mother of Jesus uh, comes to Jesus and she simply makes a observation statement. They have no wine. But that would have meant uh, this. It would have meant this is shameful and, uh, and uh, this will bring dishonor. And this is a problem. Uh, I don't know if you've ever hosted people before over at your house and say uh, somebody invites more people than you plan on and you look at your grill and you're like, okay, well, I've got some steaks and uh, I got some steaks, but now we're out because more people showed up. So then you run to the freezer and you're looking for maybe some hamburgers or hot dogs. And if they stay way too long, you might just start feeding them leftovers. So, uh, but this is a problem. Uh, the wine has run out. Um, verse four, it says this, and Jesus said to her, a woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I thought, that kind of sounds a little snarky from Jesus. Woman, what does this have to do with me? I mean, I'm thinking, I don't know, is Jesus at the table hanging with the disciples, enjoying some, some wine, and then all of a sudden he's like, it's not my problem? You know, it's what it sounds like, right? Um, well, let's back it up a little bit. I mean, uh, first of all, let's look at that word woman. Uh, back in that day, it didn't mean uh, quite what it would mean today. Like, for example, I've got kids, and they think they're a little ornery at times. Um, they will call me, um, uh, instead of calling me dad, they will call me um, father, or, and it sounds a little too serious. Um, and it's, it's interesting how language changes. Like this morning, I was driving through McDonald's, and I just ordered a bunch of sausage biscuits and some hash browns. I was going to drop it off for our, our setup team, our opening team. And uh, I get to the counter, and the guy says, will that be it, boss? And I'm like, boss? I'm not your boss. But you hear it all the time, and my kids are even calling me boss. Like, hey, boss is a cool new thing. Uh, well, back then, woman would mean something more along the lines of what we say down south would be like, ma'am. It'd be a very polite but very formal thing. And what Jesus was doing here is I think that he's... Uh, creating a little bit of distance between his, in his relationship with his mother. He is entering into his public ministry at this point in time. This is the kingdom of God breaking forth in a whole new light, in a whole new way. And he uh, calls her woman, which would be a polite way to say ma'am or miss. Uh, what does this have to do with me? Uh, this is creating a little bit of distance and perhaps they're showing a little bit more allegiance to his heavenly father rather than his earthly mother. Um, in doing this, uh, this phrase, my hour has not yet come, you know, that, that phrase is mentioned five times in the Gospel of John. 
Um, and that typically uh, it refers to uh, the hour in which Jesus was crucified. So I think the tension that's created here is two things. One is, is that Jesus is creating the distance. I'm not just your boy to do whatever you want. You don't call the shots. Uh, and then number two, he was keeping in divine step and plan and purpose uh, for, for the time of his crucifixion. He had a lot of work to do before he went to the cross. So in saying that, look what verse 5 shows us about the mother. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, Jesus didn't just say, I'm going to do a miracle. He, in a sense, it seems implied in the text that he actually indicated like he, maybe he wasn't. But immediately the mother says, whatever he says to do, that's what you're going to do. So she doesn't know how the problem's going to get fixed. Maybe Jesus is going to go over and talk to the bridegroom and be like, hey, you guys are out of wine. I'm here for you. You know, I'm sorry. It's in trouble. Uh, we don't know exactly, but the servants are told by Mary to do whatever he says to do. Verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. This would have been about 120 to 180 gallons. And they're told they're empty. You're going to fill them up. Now, a couple things to think about right here. This is a big party, okay? Because all the wine ran out, so they had to drink it. And now Jesus is making about 120 to 180 gallons of more wine. That is a big deal. There must be a lot of people there or a lot of loaded people there. <laughs> so this is happening. Jesus tells them what to do, verse 8. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And look what it says. So they helped me out. They took it. I would have been scared in that moment. What's this going to be? The master of the feast was a guy who kind of like the MC of the night. He's kind of helping everybody understand what's next and what's happening. Then there's a provision in verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the wine, now become wine. Nothing spectacular is recorded by John. He didn't say Jesus put his finger in the water and said, voila, baby. He didn't do any of that. It just all of a sudden, he said, put fill water in there and then go take it. Just nothing spectacular, but something supernatural. And it says this, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. John adds that comment to let you know. The servants knew exactly what was going on. They were behind the scenes. It says, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and here's the provision, verse 10, and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. What a surprise. It would have been a shock. I mean, this is perhaps, not perhaps, this is absolutely the best wine ever on planet Earth. I don't know if you've ever tasted good wine, but this is the best wine. This is like wine from, the, from pre, pre uh, fall. This is like the garden wine. This is the kind of wine I think that we will have in heaven one day when the Bible talks about a feast and a festival and a wonderful time together. This wine is, nobody had ever tasted anything like this. And I don't think anybody ever will until we get to heaven. There's a provision. And then here's the purpose. Why the miracle? Why, why do miracles? Verse 11, John tells us, this is the first of his signs, a.k.a. 
miracle, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his, help me out, his glory. And what's the result? And his disciples believed in him. So what's the purpose of a miracle? The purpose of a miracle is to get people to believe in Jesus. The purpose of a miracle is God's glory. So you can say, I don't know what to say. It's just got to be a miracle. Um, Are there other purposes for miracles as we look at the scripture, the Bible? Yes, there are. My friends from Dallas Seminary, uh, they hold to a position called uh, cessationism, which means that basically all the miracles ceased at the time of the apostles, and that was it. Uh, And so therefore, any miraculous thing you see today is just perhaps a, a natural explanation So I don't hold to that position, even though I came from that school. And you say, why do you say that? Well, when I look back at Scripture in 1 Corinthians 12 and Galatians 3, the apostles are not leading the church in Corinth, nor the church in Galatia. And Paul writes back and talks about the miracles that are taking place in the church. And I think what we could say and see is back to that definition. I think it is true. Miracles are just less common kinds of activity in which God uses to arouse people's awe and wonder to bear witness about himself. I don't know what miracle that you need in your own life, but I know that God is a big, wonderful God who can do just about anything you could imagine. Uh, What are the principles that we're going to walk away with? Verse 12, look what happens. After this, after this miracle was performed, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Here's what I'm thinking. What were they talking about for a few days? Imagine that. What are the takeaways? Uh, You just witnessed uh, turn water into wine. Here's three that I think that we could all live by. Number one is that when it comes to life and we get into a problem, you always need to go to God. Um, Go to God. That's when, just like what we see with Mary, the first thing that she does, she doesn't turn to Peter, James, or John. She goes straight to Jesus. Jesus? They have no wine. That's a problem. It's not just a problem because they needed more beverages. It's a problem because without the wine, it doesn't highlight the joy, the celebration, the festivity, and it actually brings in this idea that if he can't even provide enough drinks, how is he going to provide enough for her? This is shameful. Uh, In some uh, settings of of the cultural Jewish traditions, you could sue somebody if they didn't have enough of the supplies for the wedding. And so my question to you is, what do you need to go to God with? What kind of problem are you facing? A mountain you feel like you can't climb. Maybe it's a medical issue, a barrier. Maybe it's a a son or a daughter that's a wayward and you're, you're nervous is all get out wondering how this is going to get reconciled. The first thing you need to do is go to God. Don't turn to the pills. Don't turn to the bottle. Turn to God. That's the first place you go. Don't even uh, go and talk to your friend or your uh, counselor. Go first to God, then go get some help from other godly believers. Uh, number two, I think the second principle that we can walk away with would be this, is that you put your trust in God. You don't put your trust in anybody. You don't put your trust in anything. You put your trust in God. Just as I trust, this stage is going to hold me. I, you got to have to trust that the areas of life that he's calling you to live are areas that require trust. 
when you're not having to trust God in any area of your life, then you're probably not living the life that God wants you to live. How do you know God's purpose and plan for your life? Are you living with faith? Are the things that you feel like God's calling you to do, does it require trust? I think of areas like giving or serving. I mean, the, the biggest thing, the markers for us, I think, is in our Christian faith of our maturity, do we give? Do we trust God when we give? Do we serve? Can we sacrifice our time and give a little bit more time? Or can we share our witness with somebody else? Can I trust that God is a good God and God would be a blessing to that person's marriage, that person's business? And do I trust that God could use my words, my actions to influence that person? Whatever area that you're facing, I want to ask you, will you trust in God more with your life? And number three, I would say uh, act in faith. You don't act in fear, you act in faith. Like we need to be the people of this community that are always kind of pushing the envelope of living in faith. Christians need to be living in faith constantly and continually. We should say nothing will stop me from living out my faith. I will press forward, push forward. I will act and live by faith. The apostle Paul said this in Romans, The whole thing, from start to finish, the Christian life, it starts with faith, it ends with faith. And so, in this uh, situation, perhaps I can imagine the disciples and the, the folks that had witnessed this miracle firsthand, and by the way, not the entire wedding party even knew a miracle took place. Who knew were the servants? Um, I'm sure word got out, but I'm sure that if I was Peter, James, or John, or one of the guys, or you were one of the gals that were there, imagine that. You witness a powerful miracle, water to wine. Then you walk away from there and think, I'm going to trust God more in my life. I'm going to be more bold and be more courageous to do what he wants me to do. See, the Bible tells us that you have the Holy Spirit right now, living within you, for every one of you who say, I'm a Christian. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is working in your thoughts, in your mind, and in your convictions. And when you are here right now, the very presence of God is simply trying to get you to follow him more. And I don't know what the Holy Spirit's saying to you, but I do know this, is that oftentimes the Holy Spirit calls us, leads us, challenges us to live more in faith. And I would say, you've got to act in faith. I want to close by sharing with you a story, uh, a more recent story. I told you a miracle story 20 years ago. Let me tell you a, a miracle story two years ago that happened in this church. Uh, when we bought this property several years ago, we bought nine acres. And it was a big accomplishment for us. The church was only our, maybe a couple hundred Uh, Today, we have 244 families that give financially to North Valley, and we equate that to about maybe six to 700 folks that uh, are part of North Valley today. And, uh, but back then, when we uh, first bought the property, uh, we wanted that North property. So when you drove in, you saw that fence on the left-hand side, that's about a three-acre property, but we didn't have the money for it. That would put our campus about 12 acres but we didn't have the money for it. But I did make an ask 
I said to the seller, I said, would you hold it for us for a number of years? And if we can come up with the money, then we'll buy it from you. If not, you can turn it loose on the open market. He said, you know what? I will. So he held the property for several years and he put a date on it. September 26. Uh, he, was, he would, if, I didn't, if we didn't come up with the, the money by that time, or at least a big chunk of change, then he was going to release it on the open market. And I told the elder team, um, I said, you know, guys, that piece of property, I, I really believe it's a, an important part of our future campus development, but I feel like our congregation has already given way above and beyond to buy this campus, renovate the nine acres, um, you know, I, I think we should just pray and ask for a miracle. And so we did. We prayed. Uh, we didn't know what was going to happen. And September 25th hit. And then September 26th hit. And I knew that was the deadline by the end of the day. I walk into my office and do my regular work, do my little message prep on Thursday afternoon. All of a sudden, we get a knock on the door. Guy says, is pastor here? And one of the guys says, uh, which one? I don't know. The main guy in charge. Who's here? Oh, that's Pastor Ryan. He's in the back. Come to my office. This gentleman's here. Who is he? I don't, I don't know. I don't know who he is. Total stranger walks into my office and he says, sir, can I sit down with you? And I said, sure. I'm sure you can. He's stuck in my office. Can't take him anywhere. So sure, you can sit down. He says, I'm a Christian man. I said, good. I'm a Christian too. He says, uh, do you, uh, are you okay? I've got a journal here, and I've got some stuff to confess. I thought, hmm, guilty Catholic. <laughs> 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 and he says, um, I need to get right with you, and I need to get right with God. I said, all right, I'm, I'm here. He said, you see, I'm the business owner next door. I'm building 200 houses. And uh, I know that property that you want, you don't have the money for I said, you're right. He said, and actually I contacted the seller and I was going to pay cash for it. I had all the deal ready. I was sending him a check. And the Lord spoke to me and said, don't do that. That's the church's property. He said, I went two weeks. I ignored it. He said, I'm so overwhelmed with guilt. I have to come to you and confess. I'm sorry. I withdrew and the, that property belongs to the church. I said, well, praise the Lord, hallelujah. I said, that's awesome. You have a lot of courage to come in here and share that with me. I'm very proud of you. You must be a great godly businessman. He said, thank you very much. I, man, I feel so much better. He said, so the property's yours. I said, well, that's great and all, but you know, we don't have the money. And he said, you don't have the money? I said, no, like I said, uh, you know, we, we don't have the money. That's why we're releasing it. He said, when are you releasing it? I said, today. In 20 minutes, I've got to make the phone call. He said, call the owner right now. I said, I don't know, sir. He said, call him. I said, you got it. You got it, boss. <laughs> so I call him, put him on speakerphone, and he goes, come on, put it on speakerphone. And I said, okay. I said, uh, all of a sudden, we hit voicemail. Ah, oh, dang. I'm like, God, no, 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 not, not voicemail. So I say, uh, sir, uh, I got a gentleman in my office. And then the guy just takes over and goes, it's me, so-and-so. Yeah, you know that property? Well, the church doesn't have the money, but I do. So that church, I'm going to help out. You do not shut that thing down. That property belongs to them. 
And I hang up the phone. I'm like, what just happened? Go back to the elder team. I said, only God. I have no idea. A week later, he asked me to meet right underneath that Ramada. It's him and his attorney. And he said, Ryan, I, um, when I sell this property over here, we're not going to write the whole check for you, but we're going to give you the church $200,000 free and clear. And then what I want you to do is I want you to go find a couple other investors that would buy and hold the property. And so we did. We had several families in this church step forward and said, we'll put up the capital. We formed a LLC, a company called 926 Miracle. 926 Miracle. And that company exists today. North Valley's 20% landowners. Uh, we own that property. And the plan will be that'll be used for future expansion of our campus in the years ahead. Here's what I'm telling you today. Ladies and gentlemen, God can do miracles. He can answer prayers that just seem uh, like crazy out of the blue. And the second that you start believing that everything has to have a natural explanation and coincidence, I believe that you're belittling the power, the majesty, the supernatural, awe and wonder of who he is. And what I'm challenging you today is to take one more step forward and say, I want to live further in an area of faith and trust in my life. And when you hit a big problem, okay, go ahead and find your natural remedies and your natural solutions, but don't you ever excuse the power of God in your life. Don't you ever think that God isn't big enough to handle any problem that you have. You need one big problem and just a little bit of faith. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for you. Thank you for the simplicity a miracle at a wedding that shows of your love, that shows of your provision, that shows of your power. And Lord, today we just open up just a moment and just hear and just say, I believe. And Lord, whatever you want to do, whatever miracle could be in the making right now, Lord, we just pray a simple faith that we believe more. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give today at northvalleychurch.org.